Kids can head back to their class, and as they do so, uh, notice the adults that are going with them and thank them later. (laughs) We here at Calvary love that sound, don't we? The sound of kids, the chaos that is a part of all that, um, you know. Sometimes it's, it's funny. Sometimes, you know, it, it can seem like a disruption. And sometimes, you know, you get that kid who's just super excited or super not happy at all. Um, and it's like, man, this is, this is rough. But at the same time, it's the sound of joy and laughter and, and life. And so we just, we do, we, we take joy in that here at Calvary. I'm so thankful for our teachers who teach. Um, I've got an extra special glimpse of that because I started teaching the Sunday school class with the kids. So at 8.45 to about 9.30. Um, and I got to tell you, it, it is a special person uh, to teach. And honestly, I'm not that person. I will. Um, because we need it, and I will because they're part of our flock. Uh, the little sheep are just as valuable, and that time of teaching is just as important as right now. Um, but it is a, I have a special understanding for Carol, uh, who's running our kids' stuff, and all the teachers that she is, has and recruited to do that. And I will also just put a plug in that she could use some more help in that department in kids and nursery. And so if the Lord lays that on your heart to help, let her know, um, because it is a joy. And it is a gift, and, and it's just so wonderful um, that our kids get blessed by being, being able to be in the Word uh, and, and being loved by adults in our church. In transition from all of that, because I wasn't planning to say any of that, um, let us dive into the time of our sermon and our message. And I want to tell you today that this sermon is for any of us who have ever been abused, for any of us who have ever been attacked, for any of us who have ever been slandered, cheated, on, cheated in some way, stolen from. This sermon is for the hurting because of cancer, pain, or sorrow. This sermon is for any of us who have ever been attacked by the enemy in oppression, in temptation, or in lies. It is for the maligned, the victim of somebody else's acts of injustice. It is for any one of us who would describe ourselves as having had a hard life. It is for anyone who wonders if what they're going through right now is some punishment from the Lord. In short, this message is for you, and it's for me. We're in James chapter 5. We're in James chapter 5, and... And I just pray that as we would read this today, as we would study this, this today, that we would hear so well the goodness of God. A quick reminder, this comes out of what Scott taught us last week, the beginning of James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, where we saw that the, 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 the rich unjust are going to be punished. And that's not just the rich or just the unjust or the rich unjust, but is everybody it is everybody who would, who would not rely on God in their lives and would turn to evil and would turn to the destruction of other people for their own gain and their own profit. And so we come to this message out of that. So when James writes this, starting in verse 7, again, James chapter 5, verse 7, he writes, Be patient, therefore, brothers, we know that this is coming out of everything he said last week, right? God will judge the unjust. God will judge the unrighteous. He will punish them. 
So we know in verse 7 where it says, be patient therefore brothers, that what he's talking to us about right here is a direct result of that. And this is what he says coming out of that. Be patient therefore brothers until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Would you all pray with me as we come into this? God, we thank you for your word, Lord, and we thank you for your spirit, which, which gives us the ability to read it, to hear it, to understand it, Lord, and to implement it into action in our lives. I pray, Lord God, that today we would be a people that, that though we may have been attacked, we may have been hurt, we may have come from difficult situations, Lord, that we know that you are in sovereign control over it all. And we pray, Lord, that we would be comforted today. As we are preparing for Christmas, as we sang, O come, O come, Emmanuel, Lord, um, we are crying out for your return. For we know your return is the only thing that will bring justice, and your return is the only thing that will bring everlasting peace. And so we come before you, Lord, and we pray that you would bring your spirit into this place today, that we might hear and understand, Lord, that your son would come back, return, that we might live in eternity in the joy and presence of, of you, Lord God. We thank you and we come before you, God. Amen. The question is, is what do we do when we have been treated unfairly? What do we do as Christians when life just crashes down around us, when things are not what they're supposed to be? What do we do when we feel that attack from the enemy, be it a, a human enemy, someone who has set our, us as their enemy, or the enemy, the devil, Satan, who seeks to kill and destroy us? What must we do? Well, James is really clear here. And I'm going to be as clear as I possibly can be. He says to be patient and endure. But what does that look like? That's what we're going to be looking at today. To start, I want to, talk, to begin talking about patience and the attitude of God. Patience and the attitude of God. Or maybe the mind of God might be another way to think about that. See, he writes in verse 7, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Now, it's interesting. The word for patient here is also the word for endurance, but it actually has another meaning in that, that it only ever really applies to God, except right here. What's interesting about that is as you start to think about what it means to be patient and to endure in the way that James is talking about being patient and enduring, he's basically saying to us, Christian, have the same mind as God. Have the same patience as God. The same understanding as God. The, the word is macrothymia, which only two of you in this room care about. 
But what it means is, is to be patient and long-suffering is only God is truly patient and long-suffering. This is one of my favorite qualities about God. If you've been part of Calvary for really any length of time, you, you probably know that. Every time I get the chance to talk about it, here it is. Because God's patience, his long-suffering, his endurance, and his enduring of evil, of, of how we treat him and how we treat others, is one of the most beautiful characteristics of God that I can imagine. Because what would happen to us if every time we sinned, and when we sin, we know that we deserve death. This is what the Bible tells us. What would happen if every time we sin, God just was like, bam, lightning bolt. I mean, just think about the first time that you sinned consciously. Maybe you were like nine years old or 12 years old. And you sinned and suddenly God was like, bam. <laughs> this is... This is why God's patience and long-suffering is so important. Because if it wasn't patient and long-suffering, then none of us would ever have a chance to come to Jesus. His long-suffering means that he does not pronounce judgment, nor does he enact the punishment for that judgment when we deserve for it to have happened, which is in the moment that we sin in the moment that we turn away from him. But rather, if you're a Christian, he sends conviction upon your life through the Holy Spirit that says, you've done something that you shouldn't do. You're doing something that you shouldn't do and you should desire something else. The conviction that comes that causes us to repent, confess and repent and, and to grow. And if we're not Christians, I mean, all the more, how important is it for the long-suffering of God? Because there's nothing else to base the fact that, that we're still breathing. For he has not pronounced judgment on us yet, and he has not punished us yet. Trouble is, you and I, we really don't like the long-suffering part. I mean, we love it when it applies to us, but we hate it when it applies to everybody else. Right, when somebody does me wrong... All I want is God to punish them, right? God, enact your vengeance, enact your judgment on this. You know, make them hurt, make it uncomfortable. But when I do something wrong, it's like, Lord, please be patient with me. There were two important court cases in massive nation, uh, national attention in the last two weeks. While there are those who I, I'm sure disagree with the verdicts in one way or another, um, there are many people who also think that the outcomes of both cases was exactly what it should be. I don't know what you think, and, and quite frankly, I don't really care <laughs> uh, right now. It's, it's not important to what we're talking about. But what I would want to say this is, what would have happened in either of those cases or in both cases if, if as soon as the trial began, the judge stood, stood up and said, all right, I don't care what anybody else is going to say, this dude is guilty or this dude is innocent. Or what would it have been like for the jury to stand up in the first three minutes of the trial and say, we already know what happened. You don't need to do anything. You don't need to say anything. We, we've got our idea already. I mean, a chaos and pandemonium, right? Like, it would have been terrible, and it would have been an, an, an act of injustice. This is why God's patience and long-suffering is so important. Because if God were to just declare what God already knows to be true, none of us would have any hope. 
but he doesn't. He waits, and he's patient. And church, this is what James means when he says, Christian, be patient and endure. You may know that what they've done to you, you may know what has happened to you, you may know what you're going through in life is simply not fair and is not just. You may know that for sure. You may be able to declare it. But God says to us, be patient and endure. Why? Because the sun is coming. Because Jesus is coming back. Look what he says. Be patient there for brothers until the coming of the Lord. A few verses later in, in verse 8, he says, You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Why is this so important? Because no matter what wrong is going on in our lives, there is something better coming. And Christian, we can respond to that awfulness in our lives. If it's a person hurting us or if it's a situation that's coming against us and we can be angry and we can be bitter. We can attack back. We can be violent. We can yell. We can cause all kinds of fits. Or we can wait for the Lord who will make all things right. We can wait for the Lord who will make all things right. He uses this illustration of a farmer. And I got to tell you, it's really tempting living in an agricultural community to be like, all right, this is what he means. And, and go through this crazy list of all of the different aspects of what it means to be a farmer and be patient. But James doesn't do that. So let me just highlight the two things that James really lands in. There's two very important things I want us to hear in this. The first is the word precious. The farmer is waiting for the precious fruit of the earth. Now here's the thing. That word precious is only always, except right here, used to describe silver and gold. You know, last week, Pastor Scott brought to us the message before where we read about silver and gold, which is actually corruptible and will fade away into nothing even though we know that silver and gold don't do that. They don't corrode. That's why they're so valuable and so precious. So in the last verse, he said, hey, look, you've got silver and gold, and it is worth nothing. And in this case, he says, look, there is a precious fruit. Now, I don't know about you, but fruit in my house, vegetables, these things often rot. Right? We buy them, we put them in the fridge, we forget about them, and a week later, we're like, that is a nasty smell. And yet, the word that's used here is meant to show us that what is coming, the fruit that's coming, is forever. It is permanent. It will not change. So the farmer's waiting for this precious fruit. Church, we too get to wait for the precious fruit that will never go away, that will never corrode, never corrupt, never rot. Eternity with Christ. In his presence, worshiping and praising him and being able to live in ways that we can't even imagine right now. The farmer's waiting for this precious fruit. And isn't something that's precious worth waiting for? Yeah. I mean, isn't something that's so precious worth the wait? The second thing that James highlights in here when he's talking about the farmer, is the, the early and the late rains. 
the early and the late rains. Now, what is that? That's kind of interesting. Well, in Palestine, in the Middle East, in Israel, there are certain times of year that it rains and certain times that it doesn't rain. And in Israel, there is a season where you sow, you plant your seeds, and out of that, right after that, you count on the early rain. And that early rain will come at just the right time. You plant your seed at the right time, the early rain comes, and, and it begins the growing process. And then there's no rain. And there's nothing for a long time. But then there's a late rain. And just before the harvest, there's a late rain that comes. And it provides all the water that those plants need at just the right time so that the harvest is bountiful and wonderful. And James says, hey, look, you need to be waiting for the precious fruit that will get watered by the rain that comes at just the right time. Because isn't this how God works? Isn't this how Jesus works? He works in his own time at the right time, the perfect time, so that there would be a crop, there would be a harvest. So James is telling us to have the same attitude as God. The same attitude as the God who knows all things and who knows when everything is going to take place. The God who knows that judgment is coming. The God who knows that there will be justice. Those who sin will be punished. The enemy will be defeated and cast into the pit of hell. The God who knows that Jesus is coming back. In Mark 13, 32, Jesus says this, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. And here's the deal. We are supposed to have the same mind, the same patient endurance as God who knows the day, even though we don't. Even though we don't know the day, he does, and we are meant to have the same mind as him as we wait in patient endurance for that day. See, all this rests in the coming of the Lord. I have to tell you, if Jesus wasn't coming back, there would not be any hope. His coming back is what gives us the hope that justice will come, that the judge will judge rightly, that those who deserve it, who have not come to Christ, will be punished, and that the final, in the final days, the enemy will be defeated fully. This is amazing and great news to the believer, and it is terrible news to those who don't believe. And so he says, wait. He says, wait, wait patiently, endure. And then he says, to establish your heart. This is a powerful image. Here's what he says, verse eight. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. He says, establish your hearts. This is what it means to patiently endure. To establish your hearts, to ready your heart, to strengthen your heart, to grow your heart for the coming of the Lord. For he is coming. He will arrive, he will come, and he will come as a judge. Establish your hearts, church. 
Establish your hearts. In that, he tells us that we need to be ready. He tells us we need to be ready. Did you catch this? I love this. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. What does it mean that it's at hand? It means it could happen right now. It means it could happen tomorrow. It means that it can happen tomorrow plus an hour. It means that it can happen at any moment, and we should expect that it will happen soon. Now, the amazing thing you think about that is that James is writing almost 2,000 years ago, and he was as right then as he is now. See, it doesn't not matter what that day is. It matters that it is at hand. So many Christians spend so much time and energy trying to do the math and trying to figure out what day it is. I gotta tell you, if you could figure it out, then Jesus would have. But Jesus said, I don't even know. Why do we spend time and energy on that? I will tell you why. I am convinced why so many Christians spend so much time on this. It's because they do not want to be ready now. They want to be ready then. They are uninterested in discipleship now. They're uninterested in growth now. They're uninterested in evangelism and discipleship now. And they're like, all right, if I can narrow it down to 25 years in the future, man, I got 20 years to party. I got 20 years to do whatever I want to do. <laughs> is there any other reason we would be so concerned about when this is going to happen? When Jesus, when James, when all the New Testament tells us that we should be ready for it now. In Matthew 25, Jesus tells a parable about the bridesmaids waiting for the groom to come. And in that parable, some of them are ready. And they've got their lamp oil, and they're all set. You just think about the lamp oil. It's, it's a really important image because it, it goes away. I mean, if you don't have enough of it, then your light goes out. So some of them are ready. They have extra lamp oil there. They're set till the, till the groom shows up. But the rest of them, they run out. And they don't have what they need. And so they go to the store and they go to buy more lamp oil so they have what they need, but it's too late. The groom comes and the door gets closed and they are barred forever. The time is now. We've been talking about this for months now. The time is now. Because the coming of Christ is at hand. It could be while I'm still speaking this message today. It could be while we sleep tonight. It could be tomorrow. It could be on Christmas Eve this year, which would be pretty sweet if we're sitting here worshiping the Lord on Christmas Eve and celebrating his first coming and he came back for his second one. Let me ask you a question. When Jesus returns, where do you want to be? Where do you want to be when Jesus returns? And I can ask that in a couple ways. Number one, physically. Where physically do you want to be when Jesus returns? Tell you where I don't want to be. I don't want to be parked at a pot shop in Rocky Ford. Okay? <laughs> I don't want to be in a strip club. I don't want to be sitting in front of my computer looking at porn. I don't want to any number of things I could keep going and be very specific about when Jesus returns. Physically, I don't want to be in any of those places. 
And you might have a whole list you can come up with. You're like, you know what? I really don't want to be there, and I really don't want to be here, and, and etc. Francis Chan tells a story about his mother-in-law. His mother-in-law was a saint in the Lord. Francis Chan was a pastor, was in California. I don't even know where he is now, but... Um, he tells a story. He and his wife, they, they took their mother-in-law to a show, some theater thing, and at the end of the show, um, he goes to her and he says, hey, some you know, mother-in-law, I don't remember her name. He says, you know, what did you think of the show? And she says, oh, it was, it was nice. But it's not where I would have wanted to be if Jesus came back. It's nice, but it's not where I would have wanted to be if Jesus came back today. All right, where are you physically? Where are you in your state of mind? Like, where are you in your state of mind or in your current spirituality? Tell you where I don't want to be. If Jesus comes back tonight, I don't want to be in rebellion. I don't want to be fighting with my brothers and sisters in Christ. I don't want to be arguing with people. I don't want to have just yelled at my kids. Okay, like there's a million places I don't want to be if Jesus comes back. And if it really is at hand, his coming back, if it could really happen at any minute, then what the heck are we doing with our time and energy? Where do you want to be when Jesus returns? The challenge for us as Christians is to go and do that. Is <laughs> to live there as much as we possibly can. And he says that we need to establish our hearts. Guys, that's what the rest of the sermon's about today, is what it means to establish our hearts, especially in light of the pain and the struggle and the sorrow that so many of us face so much of the time. And I know we've got people in our church who live in chronic pain. We've got people in our church who live in chronic physical pain and chronic emotional pain. And we've got people who live in a state of spiritual pain as well. What does it mean to establish our hearts when things are coming against us, when things aren't working, when everything just seems to be falling apart? That's what we're going to look at today in the rest of our time. We're going to see three things. The first is that we should not grumble to one another. Here's what, here's what James writes. And just think about why this gets its own verses in this paragraph. Why is it so important for James to land here as he's talking about establishing your hearts and he's talking about justice and he's talking about the ways that, that others have attacked and hurt and persecuted the church. Verse 9, he says, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. He takes the time, the ink space in the scriptures to tell us, to remind us that when everybody else is attacking us, we should not do what? We should not attack each other. I really wish it was not necessary, but every one of us has experienced in our own lives when we've done it or when others have done it to us. When their life is hard or when our life is hard, what happens? We start yelling. We start grumping. We start complaining. We start comparing our situation to everybody around us and we think, man, I love Jesus more than that person and that person's not suffering nearly as much as I am. And we grumble against each other. And we speak lies against each other. James was talking about that back in chapter 3 and chapter 4. It's like when the world starts attacking us, what do we do? We just start like flailing around. If I'm hurt, then you're going to be hurt too. This should not be church. 
We have this tendency to grumble against one another in jealousy and envy. We saw that in James chapter 4. That's why I bring it up right here. Wishing that we had their situation instead of ours. Wishing that what we were experiencing was what they are experiencing. Wishing that we could have something different than what we have. The enemy, the adversary, I've mentioned him a few times, he wants nothing more than to take our attention off of all this stuff and, and to just focus it on each other. If you've ever read the book Screwtape Letters from C.S. Lewis, he proves this point over and over again. In that book, it's, it's a greater demon writing to a lesser demon who's tempting a certain individual in a certain church and he says, hey look, cause him to see every fault and everything and everybody around him at church because that'll take his eyes off Jesus. That's my paraphrase. Do not grumble against one another. And why is it that we have this tendency that when we're struggling, we just start fighting with the people around us, even those very people who are probably the most likely to help us, the most likely to support us, to build us up and to be there no matter what happens in our lives. On the other hand, what can we do? Right, because it's not enough really to just say, hey, don't grumble against one another or with each other. What can we do? Number one, we need to encourage each other. Because we need to encourage the heck out of each other. We should make it a contest in our church to see who can outdo one another in love. That actually is a command that Paul gives to the church. To outdo one another in love and encouragement. I mean, what if we had a board on the wall and each one of us, our names were on it. And every time I encourage someone in the church, that person would go and put a check mark, you know, or a little slash mark. We add it all up and tally it at the end. At the end of the year, there's a big prize for whoever encourages everybody else in the church more than anybody else. How awesome would that be? And how awesome would it be to get to the end and be like, you've just got a ton of stuff, and the person at the bottom of the list is like, hey, you're a really good encourager. I'm really thankful for you. <laughs> right? Why do we grumble against each other when what we could do is build each other up? All right, number two, we need to be generous with one another. We need to be generous with one another. We need to share. Right? We need to give. We need to, we need to be ready to take the shirt off our back and give it to somebody else. To take the food out of our fridge and hand it to somebody else. To take what we love to do and figure out ways to bless other people with it. We need to encourage each other. We need to be generous with one another. One of the ways we need to be generous with one, with one another is that when somebody sins against us, guess, guess what we need to do? We need to be ready to forgive. Are you ready to forgive? Or when somebody does something, they say something, and maybe it wasn't even on purpose, man, you're just out for blood. I gotta tell you, we should be broken when somebody in our church hurts us, but not for us, but for them. Can we be generous with one another when we mess up, when we hurt each other, when we say things that we didn't mean to say or that we meant to say, and maybe we didn't know where it was going to go? Number three, this is really important. We need to pray with each other. We need to pray with each other. I mean, how great is it when you're with somebody, you find out, man, they've got a hard thing going in their life, and you just say, all right, we're going to stop right here and we're going to pray. 
We're not going to do anything else until we pray. Then we're going to go back to what we were doing. It happened a few times yesterday. We were decorating the church, and suddenly there's these little prayer groups happening because people are fellowshipping, and they're talking about what's going on, and somebody says, hey, we should pray about that. This is the opposite of what it means, what grumbling with, against each other is, is to encourage each other, be generous with one another, and to pray for each other. Can we do that? All right, what else does it mean to uh, prepare our hearts, to strengthen our hearts for this day? We need to see what suffering is for. We need to see what suffering is for. In church, what you need to know is that suffering is for blessing. Now I was going to tell you, I'm going to give you a little bit of warning right now. This is the longest point in my sermon because this is the heart, the meat of what James is saying here. And this is the thing that most Christians, most of us miss all the time. This is one of the most important things that we need to know as Christians ever. I've heard it said multiple times this week by people, why is God punishing me? I love it when the Lord gives me conversations with people and then he gives me a passage. <laughs> Did you know that if you're suffering in your life right now, it's not the punishment of the Lord? Did you know that? It's not. We're going to see that over the next five to ten minutes. And I really want you to see that. Because if you're suffering, it is not the punishment of the Lord. It's not. We're going to see that really clearly. Starting in verse 10. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Pause. All right, so you've got the prophets who speak in the name of the Lord. You've got the people who arguably know God the most, are the most obedient to the Lord, even to the point of speaking word for word what he has given them to say. And in the scriptures, they suffer more than anybody else in their obedience. They're not being punished by the Lord. <laughs> They're not. This is James's point here. They were killed, they were in prison, they lost their family and their friends. God commanded one of them to marry a cheating prostitute who, big surprise, cheated on him and then said, forgive her, restore her. Bring her into right relationship with you. There was another prophet who was called by God to lay down on his side for 390 days. Then when he was done with that, he was called to lay down on his other side for another 40 days as a sign of the judgment and sin against the nations of Israel and Judah. Now you may think laying down for 390 days might be a great rest until you remember things like bed sores and atrophy and starvation, and hunger, and ridicule, and all this other stuff. John the Baptist was arrested and beheaded, but before he was killed, Jesus gave him the gift of the assurance of who he was, who Jesus was. John sends a messenger. He says, go find out if Jesus really is who I think he is. Can you imagine the pain? <laughs> I mean, he's in prison. He probably knows he's going to die soon. I mean, he's not getting out. 
And he sends one of his, his friends, one of his disciples to Jesus. Jesus, just go find out if he really is who I think he is. And Jesus sends him back. He says, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Each one of those is a direct quote from one of the prophets in the Old Testament who was prophesying about the Messiah coming. He said, when the Messiah comes, these are the things that are going to happen. Jesus sends the messenger, says, go tell John what you've seen, what you've heard. There are people who are blind who see now. Deaf who hear, lame who walk. Yes, I am who you think I am. And your suffering is for a purpose. Because if Jesus is who he says he is, then it does not matter to John the Baptist what he suffers. It does not matter that he will die, that he will be himself beheaded. It does not matter that he's sitting in prison because if Jesus is who he says he is, then John is waiting for that precious gift. He is waiting for the precious fruit that comes in the harvest of waiting when the Lord has worked in the spring rains and the fall rains at just the right times. Amen? It's out of the deepest pain, the deepest fear, the deepest sorrow, the deepest trouble that, when we, that we will see who Christ really is. Have you ever wondered why it just seems like people who have really suffered a lot in their lives have the ability to know God more? Why those of us who have not struggled as much sometimes struggle with the reality of God at all? Why orphans and widows in impoverished nations in Africa, in South America, and in Asia, have more joy than we can ever have? It's because the scriptures are clear. Those who suffer are blessed. Which is a problem for us sometimes because we may suffer, and some of us do, but most of us don't suffer like that. Which brings us to Job. <laughs> brings us to Job. Here's what he says. He says in verse 11, Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Now, I don't know if you've read the book of Job. I hope you have. If you haven't, you need to. Some, by some miracle of the Lord, Job was the first book I read as a Christian. I have no idea why, but it's the first book I read from beginning to end as a Christian, and it has stuck with me all the way through, because Job is a man who has everything and then loses everything, and then spends countless chapters being told by everyone around him that it's his fault, that the Lord would not have done this in his life if he wasn't a sinner and deserved it. His best friends, his wife, I mean, they're like, Job, if God did this to you, then you must be being punished because of something you did or didn't do. And the whole time, here's the deal, Job maintains his innocence. Not that he's not a sinner. He knows he's a sinner. But he says, look, I've never done anything to deserve this. And he says it over and over and over again. This is Job's steadfastness. He is firm in the knowledge that God is not punishing him. 
And if there is another reason this is happening, even though he has no idea what it is, and he doesn't, he has no idea why any of this is happening to him, but he knows one thing. It is not punishment from the Lord. He is not suffering because of what he did. And we need to hear this. Because in the end of the book of Job, this is so cool. God gives him everything back in like tenfold. Right? So he lost a bunch of family members. He gets a bunch of family members. He lost all his wealth. He gets a bunch of wealth. He lost his house. He gets like mucho house. Okay? We say, man, Job is blessed. Job is blessed because God gave him all this stuff. Really? How many of us who have lost a family member and we get three family members on the side and we're like, yeah, that's great. Job is not blessed because he gets all this stuff back. Some of that is kind of the icing on the cake. Job is blessed because at the end of the book of Job, God speaks to him and says, here I am. This is who I am. And for the first time in all of it, Job realizes that his suffering was for a purpose. It's that he would know God better. He would know who God is and he would know how powerful God is. The blessing comes to Job not because he gets stuff. The blessing comes to Job because he gets God. And that's what James is saying here. If we would just patiently wait, patiently endure as God patiently awaits and endures for the coming of Christ, we too will get God. We too will be in his presence. We too will be blessed. He says, you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Christian, we should believe, we need to believe that when we suffer, it is not purposeless. It is for a purpose. That doesn't mean that God is doing it to us. But God will always use what is there to bring us around, to bless us with his knowledge and his presence. The trouble is too many of us waste our suffering. Man, we get the slightest bit of pain. We are pansies. We stub our toe and we take Advil. We live in a culture that hates pain and and we see the result of that in addiction all over the place. Oh, you suffered as a child? All right. Here's some alcohol. Here's some drugs. Here's some food. Right? We medicate ourselves constantly so that we will not feel either the physical pain or emotional pain of the things that have happened to us. And yet, here God is saying, look, when you suffer, you will see me. If a kid puts their hand on a stove and gets burned... It's good that they feel pain. Because the kid who feels no pain and puts their hand on the stove gets a burn that could destroy them. There is purpose in the pain. And it is not God's punishment. This is James's point. We live in a culture that, that uses hashtag blessed on everything. 
Okay, if you're on Facebook or Instagram or any of those things where hashtags get used, um, this is where I start to get really funny because I don't like use any of that stuff. Um, I hate being on Facebook, but I am because I have to be and, and such things. And, but you get this culture where like hashtag blessed, I got a new job. Hashtag blessed, my family is healthy. Hashtag blessed, all this stuff. And sometimes you're like, yeah, that's a cool blessing. And sometimes it's like hashtag blessed, I found an open fast food place. But the question is, do we use the word blessed the way God uses the word blessed? Hashtag blessed, I stubbed my toe. Hashtag blessed, I got cheated on. Hashtag blessed, got beat up. I mean, think on Job. Hashtag blessed, my family died. Hashtag blessed, lost everything. Hashtag blessed, have a nag for a wife. Hashtag blessed, my friends are jerks. <laughs> Hashtag blessed. But see, Job knows at the end of his book, <laughs> and James knows as he teaches here, and Christian, what we need to know is that it is hashtag blessed, learn to rely on the Lord. Hashtag blessed, discovered that God is my everything because I'm my nothing. Hashtag blessed, I got humbled by the Lord. <laughs> hashtag blessed, saw the might and power and goodness and help of the Lord. These things come through the suffering. They come through the pain. They come through the hard stuff. And this goes right back to why we really shouldn't grumble against each other. Because if we're going to be going through hard stuff, and we will, man, we need each other. I got to tell you, I need you when I'm going through hard stuff. You need each other. You need the person sitting next to you, the person sitting across the aisle from you, right? We need each other because it's going to be hard. And that's why we've got to be there for each other. Because if we're not, I just fear what happens is that we're going to run away from it. We're going to try to escape from it. I tell you, this summer, uh, I got the great joy of going to the beach with my kids, um, particularly thanks to Zane and Hannah for getting married in Florida and me getting to do the wedding. <laughs> and so there we are on the beach, and man, the waves were just going nuts. And we live in Colorado. We don't have waves. So my kids are experiencing some of this the first time. Eli, who's, you know, that big, um, he's just so excited. He goes out in the water, wave, bam, gets creamed, okay? I'm all worried. I, I pull him out. He's just got the biggest smile on his face ever, and he immediately does it again, and he immediately does it again, and he immediately does it again. And every time, I'm like frantically trying to pull him out of the water, right? Because I don't want him to drown. He has no idea that there is a fear of death. But eventually he starts getting tired. And getting creamed by wave after wave after wave starts to get a little bit old. There's only two options when the waves are pummeling us. Number one, you can dive into it. And that's the, 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 the path that, that many of us uh, kind of take. And that's a good path, right? I mean, it's better than getting creamed by it over and over and over again. So you dive into it and you dive through just at the right time and you come out the other side and you get a deep breath and everything is great and you can do that for a really long time. The other option is to get on a boogie board and ride that wave to shore. And that's what my son learned to do on the Florida beach. Right? Instead of getting pummeled, he learned that that wave could carry him all the way in to dry land. Are we going to ride the wave and get to solid ground? Or are we just going to keep getting pummeled over and over and over again? I 
All right, third point. In terms of our hearts and strengthening our hearts. And this may seem a little bit out of place with the others, and quite honestly, I kind of would have liked to end just where I just ended. <laughs> but James keeps going. So we're going to keep going. Verse 12, he says, But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. James says, Do not take any oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no. Now, real quick, we're talking a lot about judge and jury and court and justice and all these things. What James is not saying is that, look, if you ever get called into a courtroom, like, don't swear on the Bible. Okay, like that's not what he's saying. Now what he is saying in this is that if you do that, you should not fear the laws of the land as far as perjury goes. If he lies, uh, you should fear him. Okay, you should fear God because this is how much it matters. But what he's saying is that look, your integrity matters. And if you want to think about strengthening your heart, Right, we think about not grumbling against each other. We've, we, we've talked about um, seeing the, the, the blessing that is actually in the suffering that carries us through and gives us hope through all of it. Well, on the other side, in, in the same mix, so does our integrity. We want to strengthen our hearts. We need to be people of integrity. Our yes needs to be yes. Our no needs to be no. It should not be required of us to swear an oath on the Holy Bible in order to tell the truth. Right? Jesus said the same thing. It's your let, let your yes be yes and your no be no. If we're going to strengthen our hearts, we need to be people of integrity. We need to be people who can be counted on. When we say we're going to be somewhere, we're going to be there. When we say we're going to do something, we're going to do it. Okay? Integrity matters. Because integrity is who we are when nobody's looking, right? It's, it's, it's maintaining what we are in public and in private. And it matters if we're going to strengthen our hearts. There's a prayer in, in the book of Proverbs in chapter 30 that I, I always come back to in this. And you just see, you see what happens, the potential that happens when we're not people of integrity, what that'll do to us and what that'll do to our witness before the Lord. This is the prayer of Agar. In Proverbs 37 through 9, he, he writes this, he prays, Two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Right? You see that hint of, let your yes be yes and your no be no. And he says, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Integrity matters. It mattered to Agar when he prayed this prayer because he neither wanted to be somebody who forgot about God because he had so much that he just sort of, life was so easy that he didn't need God anymore. That's what he means when he says that. And that is a tendency that, that the rich have. It's a tendency that those of us who have comfortable lives have. We, we, we think, all right, we thank God, but we're not really relying on him anymore. But then on the other end of the spectrum are those who are so poor that their only solution is, is what? To steal. And what does that do to the image? What does that do to our witness? And so he says, he prays, Lord, my integrity matters. And if we're going to think about strengthening our hearts, our integrity matters as well. Who we are in secret, who we are in public, are you the same? Are you who God has called you to be?
Are you reliable? Can you be trusted? Here's another question. Are you steady? Are you steady in your walk and in your relationship with the Lord? So here's the, if your yes is yes and your no is no and you say you're a Christian and you're doing one of these things in your spiritual life, your yes is not yes and your no is not no. Right, if you're constantly up and down, constantly off the deep end and then constantly shooting off the top of the mountain, that is actually not yes is yes and your no is no. You've, you've said I am this, but you're not that. You're this. Our integrity matters. How we live our faith lives, how we spend time with God, how we interact with the people around us matters. And if we're going to strengthen our hearts, it all matters. And if we're going to do so while we wait for Jesus to come back, think about how much this matters. Because do you want to be at the bottom of that spiral when Jesus comes back? Having just reamed somebody or yelled at somebody or not read your Bible in three months or whatever else it is. Now maybe you might want to be shooting off the top, except that we know that when you're at the top, you're kind of getting ready to (laughs) fall off the other side, right? We talk about your yes being yes, your no being no. It means that we are just steady in the Lord. We're stable. We're solid in the Lord. We're not getting tossed to and fro by every wave. But if I steal from my previous illustration, we're riding that wave in to the firm ground that is Christ Jesus. Amen? What does it look like for you to establish your hearts right now? What does it look like for you as you go from this place today or even as we come into the time of communion which we're about to come to, does it look like for you to establish your hearts? For some of us, it means that we've got some, some confession and repenting to do. Right? It means that, that we've got to recognize that, that, that we're not establishing our hearts, that our lives are very full of, of things that we would actually really not like to be doing and not like to be when Jesus returns. And we need to turn to him. For some of us, it means that we've got to get way better at encouraging one another, at building one another up, at praying for one another. For some of us, it means changing our, our mind, transforming our mind and our hearts by knowing that the suffering we're facing is not purposeless, but that God is going to use it to give us the greatest, most precious gift himself. And I don't know where you are today, in any of this. But I do know that it is impossible to strengthen your heart without Christ. Because it is impossible to strengthen something that's dead. In the book of Ephesians, we are told that, that apart from Christ, we are dead. A dead heart cannot lift weights. <laughs> a dead heart cannot run a marathon. A dead heart cannot do anything. So if we are going to strengthen our hearts, we need to give our hearts to Jesus to resuscitate and bring back to life. And if you've never done that, you just need to hear this. Today is the day because the day of the Lord is at hand. It could be before I finish these words or it could be tomorrow or it could be the next week. We don't know. And so church, those who are gathered here, I invite you to strengthen your hearts in Christ first and partner with him in that good work of building and strengthening our hearts until the day of the Lord coming, that we would not be weak, 
that we would not flounder, that we would not fall away, that we would not attack those who attack us, that we would live for him steady and solid as if our feet are actually set on the firm rock of Christ Jesus our Lord. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you so much for your word today. The encouragement, Lord, that, that it is there. And God, I thank you so much um, for even though a hard message, a, a message where I feel like we as a church are just able to come before it and be comforted. I pray, Lord, that we would find that comfort in your word and in your message in the truth of the gospel. And Lord, as we come into the time of communion, Lord, I pray that you would lead us to see where our hearts may be weak or troubled, where they need to be strengthened, Lord. And I pray that you would work in power in us to transform us for your glory and for our good. Help us to see differently the source of suffering and to see what the purpose of suffering is in our lives. Help us to see clearly how we need to treat each other when hard things are happening to us or to others. And God, I pray that our, our yes would be yes and our no be no, Lord, that the, that the integrity of our lives would carry through. God, we thank you and we praise you and we come before you in all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Church, we do come now to the time of